is verses 1 through 6 here in John 14. We'll read these first six verses. This is God's inspired and inerrant word. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house, there are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, you may be also. And you know the way where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How do we know the way? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Let's pray. All knowing, all wise, and gracious Father, we praise you, O Lord. We praise your word in you. We trust. We trust in your word, which you have said is living and active and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. And we look to that word now, praying that you would search us by it, that you would judge our thoughts, our intentions, our motives. that you would pour out your spirit afresh upon us as we hear the word preached and taught tonight, tomorrow, and on the Lord's day. Grant to your servant the Spirit's power in preaching and teaching your word. Grant all who hear it eyes to see and ears to hear what the Spirit of Christ says to the church. We look to the promises that you've given us concerning your word, O Lord, that it does not return to you void without accomplishing all that for which you send it forth, that you have promised to accompany the word by your Spirit's presence and power. And so we plead these promises before you now and ask, O Father, that you would be gracious to us and that you would hear our prayer, hear our plea and answer in accordance with your promises. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. My pleasure to introduce to you our speaker, the Reverend Dr. Joseph Piper, who for most here tonight needs no introduction. He's President Emeritus of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary and Professor of Systematic and Applied Theology. Dr. Piper was our speaker for the first 24 conferences held here which makes this his 25th anniversary as speaker uh, at 
our conference this year. Dr. Piper, welcome. Come and bring the word. Thank you, Pastor. Am I on? I didn't get a green light. I just had a flashing light. Good. Well, needless to say, I'm very happy to be here. Um, it's just like coming home for family reunion every year, and I appreciate you putting up with me. Um, my wife sends her greetings to you, and God's providence, uh, she could not be here with us because of uh, the conference being a week later and a seminary schedule that moved up a week as well. But and I, another providence of which we would have been unaware was she woke up, she had cataract surgery earlier this month, woke up this morning with a red, painful eye. If she'd been here, well, that could have been difficult. But she was home, she got to her doctor, and it was not any infection, but only an inflammation, and they've given her some uh, prescription to take care of that. But she sends her love, she loves you all as much as I do, and really uh, wishes that she could be with us uh, this weekend. Well, Willem will be over here for Thanksgiving, so she'll get to see you then. A few years ago, I remember reading about some campers that were camping on the side of Mount St. Helens when it erupted. One of them was injured, uh, and I don't remember how many were with that injured person, but they needed to go get help. They didn't, one person didn't want to go, they didn't know what they would do to get out of there. And so they were going to leave him knowing where he was, and they would go get help. But he was very apprehensive, as you can imagine. He did not want them to go and leave him. Of course, if he didn't go and leave him, then none of them would have been rescued more than likely. And so they left him, but they left him very uh, apprehensive mood. Now, you boys and girls probably have experienced times like that yourselves. Perhaps you were at a fair or at a department store and, and suddenly looked around and there was no mother or father. And that awful sinking feeling of not only being lost, but being lost from the one that takes care of you. Well, that's a little insight in how the apostles were feeling about this point at the end of the institution of uh, the Lord's Supper. They were very distressed. They were overcome with great fear and trepidation, and we can understand something of that. Plus, their fear of that particular thing is, to us, a picture of all kinds of fears that we experience. Uh, anxiety and trouble in this world where God and his providence has placed us and left us uh, in many different trials and circumstances. And so, as we begin to look tonight at the introduction to what is called the uh, Upper Room Discourse. I know the pastors preached a couple of sermons on chapter 13, kind of lays the foundation for what we're doing here. But really, we, the Holy Spirit sets the theme here in, the, in these first uh, six verses that really is unpacked uh, in rest of the, uh, of, the, of the three chapters. 
And all of this is why we as Christians living in this world today as it is do not need to be fearful. As we look at the wonderful provisions that Christ has made for his church and what he's doing now in and through his church. So we start tonight with uh, this opening paragraph that Pastor just read. And in this paragraph, what I want to show you is, is that uh, on the basis of Christ's atoning work, he commands us uh, to be comforted and not be afraid. On the basis of his atoning work, he commands us not to be, uh, not to be afraid, but to be comforted. We're going to look at just two things here, um, the commandment and the means, the commandment and the means. Verse 1 is the commandment. In fact, it's actually two separate commandments. And then in verses 2 through 6, he unpacks the means, why we do not need to be afraid uh, in this world uh, where we are living. Well, verse 1 then is a twofold commandment. Do not let your heart be troubled. That's a command, and by itself, it's not very useful, is it? I mean, yes, it comes from Christ, and so obviously it's authoritative, but uh, uh, don't be afraid. Don't let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Now, these men had... Good reason to be troubled, isn't they? If you think what has just transpired, well, Christ has been telling them uh, in pretty clear language that he was going to be arrested and condemned and put to death. Um, they know that the authorities in Jerusalem are looking for an opportunity to arrest him and uh, to kill him. He's talking again about leaving them, and then now he's told them there's a traitor in their midst. They were scared. They were greatly perplexed and troubled. And you could see it on their faces. Just as you look around at a group of people, perhaps you're on an airplane going through um, great turbulence and planes up and down, and you look around and everybody's got this awful, frightening look on their face. That would be the, the look on the faces of these disciples as they're sitting there trying to digest all this bad news. And moreover, there's something of a paradox here, because in chapter 13, verse 21, uh, they probably would have seen this in their Savior. Um, when Jesus had said this, he became troubled in spirit. He was troubled. He tells them not to be troubled, but he's troubled because he knows exactly what lies before him. He knows exactly what's necessary if they're not to be afraid. If they're to receive his comfort, he knows exactly what he must endure. So he has every proper reason to be troubled. But he commands them, and he commands us, let not your heart be troubled. Well, the second commandment then directs our attention uh, to how we deal with this. And he continues, Believe in God, believe also in me. 
Now, perhaps you'll have a note in your Bible. Um, you believe in God. You, the, the grammatical form of, of this Greek word believe can actually be translated three or two different ways with a threefold combination. So it could be two indicatives. You kids know what an indicative is? It's a statement of fact, right? An indicative sentence, statement of fact. Could be two indicatives. You're believing in God. You're believing in me. It could be an imperative, a commandment. It could be, because it's exactly the same form. Believe in God. Believe in me. Or you could change the combination and make it a conditional form. You do believe in God, indicative, believe also in me. Now, I go for this last combination. It's very logical. Um, they do believe in God. They are faithful Jews. Uh, he has gathered a group of righteous men to live with him for three years. They know the Old Testament scriptures. They know Jehovah God. They believe in Jehovah God. Even though they've not seen him with their eyes, they do believe in God. So what he's saying is, as you believe in God whom you cannot see, you believe in God on the basis of his word, now a commandment, believe also in me. Now that in itself is an indication of our Savior's deity, isn't it? He's basically saying, as you believe in God, then you, you, you must believe in me. In fact, one of the reasons, and I was reading through this in my devotions a number of months ago when I mentioned to pastor I'd like to do this. I just was overwhelmed with so much, but particularly with the revelation here of not only the deity of the Son, but the deity of the Spirit and the unity of the Trinity. And so, I mean, one verse in, and what is Christ claiming? That he is the equal object of their faith that God the Father, or Jehovah, is the object of their faith. So he, he says that if you don't want to be troubled, you've got to trust me. Trust me. Exercise your faith in me and what you have seen and know about me. You believe in God, believe also in me. And we know that to believe in Christ is to know who he is, what he's come to do, and to rest all on him. So saving faith would be resting and receiving him alone as he's offered to us in the gospel. Living faith is then trusting him uh, with everything in our lives, that having given himself for us, he, he will withhold nothing. He will do all things for us, and he has the absolute power and ability to do all things for us. And so he's saying to them, and he's saying to you and me tonight, don't let your heart be troubled. You believe in God? Then believe in me. You've trusted Jesus Christ for your salvation, then you cannot trust him for everything else in your life. We're also reminded here that faith is not static. We're not simply talking about the faith that you exercised 1, 10, 20, 40, 50 years ago when you took hold of Christ by faith as your Savior. No, faith is a living thing. 
Just as the faith in Jehovah God uh, is, was, for them, for us, a living thing, so faith must be a living thing. It is a living and constant dependence upon God. It is resting in the character and the promises of God. It is camping there, accepting every single word that he says and relying on every single promise that he gives regardless of what's going on around us or the dark clouds like the smoke that's over us even tonight. Dark clouds of ash that speak of destruction and we see even darker clouds coming across the horizon. But Christ tells you and me, let not your heart be troubled. Believe in me. But this is not simply whistling in the dark. It's not uh, simply faith as faith, which many Christians today think that faith is simply a, a leap in the dark. No, Christ goes on now to uh, talk about uh, the means. Why may you and I have this confidence that we let our hearts need not to be troubled if we believe in Christ? Well, that's what he unpacks now in verses uh, 2 through 6. And he begins by previewing for us what lies ahead, what he's doing. Verse 2 through 3, In my Father's house are many, many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. If I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Now he's told him that he's going away. Twice the Jews have uh, misunderstood this. They thought one time, well, maybe he's going to kill himself. Another time they thought, well, maybe he's going to go off to the Gentiles. And, and the disciples are probably, what in the world are you talking about? Well, he's going away where we can't follow him now. Even as he just told Peter, no, you can't come after me now where I'm going. Where is he going? Well, now he tells them where he's going. He tells them about going to his father's house. In my father's house are many dwelling places or rooms. Now, the father's house, they have been around him long to know that he's talking about Jehovah God. He's talking about whom we would refer to as God the Father. And so obviously he's talking to you about heaven. He is saying, I'm going to heaven. And there in heaven, in the house of my father, he pictures heaven now as a house. He tells us there's a lot of apartments. What the King James says, there are many mansions. The word is, is rooms, are, are dwelling places. And, and that in itself tells us a, a lot about heaven. I don't think it's telling us exactly what our domicile is going to be, what we're going to live in in heaven, but it does tell us that there is a place for every one of you who trust in Christ in heaven. You see? That's what he's saying. There's no, nobody left out. There's nobody inferior. There's no one that's going to be cast away. There are sufficient dwelling places for every single elect man, woman, boy, and girl whom God has chosen and for whom Christ has died. You know, in that, I've also thought there is an inference in the fact that there are many rooms 
is that we're not losing our individuality in heaven. Yeah, I'm often, I've been asked that question more than once. Are we going to know our loved ones and, and uh, others in heaven? Of course we are, <laughs> because we are individuals made in the image of God, redeemed in the image of God, and, and we're going to recognize all of our brothers and sisters who are there. There's going to be an interaction as if you would be living together in these many rooms uh, that are in the Father's house. So now he's told them where it is that he's going. He's going to heaven. He's going back to the Father. And there there are sufficient dwelling places for everybody. And look at a little guarantee that he gives there in verse 2. If it were not so, I would have told you. They know of his truthfulness and veracity. Uh, He's never misled them. He simply drives it home now. You know. Whatever I tell you is true. I wouldn't be lying to you. I'm going to this place where there is something prepared for all of you. And I'm going there to finish the preparation for you. Now, I don't know if you've puzzled over this. Heaven was created uh, on day one of creation, I think. And uh, by being created by God, it was perfect. And God's throne is there. From eternity, God has chosen those whom he's going to save. What in the world is Christ going to do in heaven? What's this building project that he's going there to prepare a place for us? Well, it's a figure of speech to teach us that he is both the procurer and the possessor of all of these dwelling places in heaven. Preparing the places that it's through his perfect work that as he goes there, as we'll come back in a few moments, carrying this perfect work with him, that uh, provides the place for everybody. And then he takes possession of it as the rightful heir and king and guarantor that all those for whom he has done this work of preparation are going to be there. But I also think that part of this building project is in fact you and me because he's actually preparing us for there so in heaven as he is uh, finishing things out he's actually finishing us out for heaven isn't he so by this completed work what he's provided for us in this completed work he now by the spirit of whom we'll speak tomorrow morning uh, is going to begin and complete this work in us so that when we go to that place in heaven, we can say it's been properly prepared for us because we have been properly fitted for it and we will not be out of sync. Everything will be in perfect order. And then he says, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. He says, now you're worried about my going away. And he'll intimate to them that uh, they will see him briefly again uh, in this life, but that uh, he's going away for a good while. But here he says, I've got this work to do, and that is to gather and perfect my elect through the Holy Spirit. (laughs) And then he says, when it's finished, I'm going to come again 
What beautiful language. And receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. That's not just the 11. This is everyone, every one of you for whom Christ is preparing this place. It's his great desire. Years ago, we looked at John 17, the high priestly prayer, and as that prayer ends, he longs for people to be with him in heaven and to behold his glory. And that's part of his reward, is that we're going to be there with him, with our glorious Savior, in intimate communion and fellowship. Just let those words sink in, that where I am, you may be also in heaven with Christ. And then he says, so I'm going to come and fetch you. I will come again and receive you to myself. You see, you don't need to be worried because he gave a promise. When I was, and I really don't know how old I I was, probably maybe six or seven or eight, my father took me someplace that he had some kind of business to tend to and he left me in the car And he said, uh, just wait here. I'm going to come back for you in a little bit. (laughs) Well, you know, boys and girls, how a little bit seems like a a long bit. (laughs) And I'm sitting there thinking, I've been left forever. You know, he's not coming back for me. Uh, And that's a temptation. But Christ says, I'm coming back to take you to myself. Now, he's, of course, speaking here of the second coming, where at the end of the age he will come and and in perfection bring all of his elect to himself. But for everybody that's lived before us, and I think probably for all of us here tonight, we're going to die before he comes back like that. But this includes that because, see, when you die, Christ is coming for you personally. He has sent at least one angel, um, to take your soul directly to him in heaven, to the triune God. And so he's keeping the promise even in our death. Paul puts the two things together in First Thessalonians 4. Uh, we don't want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. So those who have died are pictured here as fallen asleep. Uh, and as our catechism so beautifully says, that their souls are immediately in the presence of God glorified, and their bodies in the tomb remain in union with Christ. And so that's why it so often speaks of death as fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall, here it is, always be with the Lord. I'm coming to take you to myself that you then may be with me. So Christ has given now this preview of what's going on in his absence. He's going to prepare this place in heaven 
and he is going to come and bring all of his people to himself that we may be where he is. So with that preview of where he's going and what he's doing, he now um, has promised us that we don't need to be afraid, but to believe in him. Uh, And so he says, and so you know the way where I'm going. You don't need to be worried. If you know the way, if you know where I'm going, then everything's falling in place for you. And then there's dear old Thomas. Now, you know, I just love Thomas. So Peter always spoke before he thought. So he was always putting his foot in his mouth. Thomas is just this very vulnerable man like most of us. He's, he's got doubts and questions, but he's not afraid to voice them. And yet, I think he here speaks for, for all of the others and probably often for you and me. And so as Christ is saying, you know where I'm going, uh, you don't need to worry any longer. You can put your faith in me. In verse 5, Thomas says, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How do we know the way? Now, if I had been in Jesus' place, I know my response would, Thomas, you dummy, I've just told you where I'm going. And then I would normally respond when somebody asked a really stupid question. The second question is not so bad, but the first, he just told him where he's going. Thomas says, but Lord, we don't know where you're going. And, and here's just an, another beautiful insight with the patience of the Savior. Now here he is in his, his, his pre-darkest, darkest time. <laughs> he's headed to the cross in a few hours. He just explained to these people where he was going. Thomas says, well, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus just takes the opportunity to set an answer to Thomas's stupid but vulnerable, doubtful question, one of the most remarkable statements in all of Scripture. So in his responding gently to Thomas, he's just simply, Thomas is helping you and me. Thomas says, we don't know where you're going. How do we know the way? Well, Jesus realized it's going to sink in pretty soon where he's going, but they do need to know more about the way. And so this is the wonderful answer now in verse 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Now, you know, this is probably... A verse that many of you have memorized is as familiar to you as your phone number or your street address. And yet, how rarely do we really stop to meditate on the reality of what the Savior is saying here and answer this question, how do we know the way? Jesus says, I am the um, pathfinder. I am the scout and I am the forerunner. So he is the pathfinder. The the way, indeed, is quite obscure. And apart from him, it would be closed to us. You understand that. All the machetes in the world could not get you through that jungle, that barrier of sin that separates you from God. So he begins by saying that I am the pathfinder. I am the one who is going to secure the way uh, into heaven so that just as Columbus would chart the oceans as he sailed 
uh, for new horizons and not really knowing the way, but charting the way for those who would go behind him, uh, uh, Christ has said, I'm charting the way for you. I'm going, and I'm going to come back, and I'm going to bring you there. And so he's also the scout. Um, uh, as, as the way, he is, he is the scout. He is the one that now is going to reveal the way. He says, leave it in a mystery. He's given it to us in Scripture. That he has charted the way, and then he says to us, here is the way. Uh, here all you said in the Sermon on the Mount, straight is the gate and narrow is the way. And he says, you know, and then he says in John 10, I am the gate, and I am the shepherd. And it's through the door of the gate that you'll enter into my fold and enjoy my life. And so we can change it from scout to shepherd. He's the one now that is gathering his flock uh, into the way. And so he's the revealer of the way. And then he is the forerunner. And by that I mean he, as is the way, has gone in the way to the heavenly mansions and opens the door for us to come after him. As Brother Hebrew says in many places, for Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands. That's what we're talking about here. I mean, a copy of the true one, but not heaven itself, but now to appear in the presence of God for us. Our chapter 4 of Hebrews. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, hold fast our confession. Chapter 8. Now, the main point and what's been said is this. We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle. So he says, you see, I am there now. Uh, as the way, I am there guaranteeing the destination and guaranteeing your entrance by the way, which is faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So he charted the way, he's revealed the way, he has sealed the way. We could, in a sense, we recognize all this is because he's accomplished his work as redeemer, as perfect prophet, priest, and king. And as a priest, he has uh, prepared the way by dealing with our guilt and our uncleanness. As prophet, he has revealed, is revealing to us by his spirit through the word, the way, and as that priestly king, he's there now enthroned, guaranteeing that we will come unto him in the way. So now the next time you think about Jesus being the way, think about prophet, priest, and king. Think about trailblazer and, and uh, scout or shepherd and king, priest, king on a throne. So he's the way. Then he says that he is the truth. Now, in the Gospel of John, truth is much more than the opposite of false. It is the opposite of false. It is an attribute of God that he is the true and faithful one who never lies and always keeps his word. But truth in John is much more. Truth in John is the fulfillment of all that has been in shadowy form predicted and laid out ahead of time. He is the the genuine fulfillment of us all. So when he says that uh, 
God is to be worshipped in truth and spirit in John chapter 4. It's not simply according to the regulated principle, which is true, but it's according to the fullness of all that Christ has accomplished. So when he says he's the truth, he's saying he is the, the faithful one of God who has come and done all that God has promised, and it's all wrapped up in him. And again now, he is the revealer of truth. He's completed the work of God, so he, and we'll come to this again and again in, in these chapters, he then is by the Spirit, through the Word, revealing truth for us. So as he goes before us now, here's a map with the glorious light of the Holy Spirit shining on this map that shows us exactly the way that we go to follow him. And so he's the way, and he's the truth. And then he says, I'm the life. Now God is life. The Psalms will say that God is life, the fountain of all light. Um, when John introduces us to the Savior in John chapter 1, he says that he is the life and the light of the world, bringing those two figures together there to introduce us to the Savior. So he is the very embodiment of who God is. He's the very embodiment of this throbbing, spiritual, perfect life of God. He's the essence of life. And his light dispels all darkness and death. And so he is God himself. He is the fountain of life, the originator of life, the one who said, let there be, and there was life. But then he says to, to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. And so as life, he's come not only as the manifestation of self-existent life, he's come as the life accomplisher because he's come to do what? He has defeated death, as Paul uh, says in Second uh, Timothy, that he has destroyed death and brought about life immortal by his own death, by what that which lies ahead of him as he's comforting now his disciples and unfolding to him what is coming to pass. Uh, he realizes that he must do battle with Satan and death so that he can destroy death and give life to his people, which he accomplished objectively in his crucifixion, burial, death, death and burial, and resurrection, but which he now accomplishes in your life when he comes by the Holy Spirit to regenerate you. And so Paul will say that, uh, therefore, we are a new creation in Christ Jesus. We are new living beings. We are being newly conformed to the image of God. We are being renewed. And life by the Spirit of Christ is throbbing within us. And that is eternal life that has already begun in you the very moment when you are regenerated. But of course, as life, as he has gone there to sit in heaven, preparing the place for us, he then is the guarantor of that perfect inheritance that awaits us. This eternal life of perfection, as I've said, we enter into it at death, our souls made perfect in the presence of God. But when Christ returns, uh, the body and soul together perfected and glorified to enjoy life 
eternal. Aren't you glad Thomas asked that stupid question? <laughs> where will you go? And we don't know where you're going. We don't know the way. Let me tell you the way, Thomas. I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. But there's one more thing here, and that is the exclusivity of this answer. For then he says, no one comes to the Father but through me. Now, I don't think anybody or not has this mistake. I hope not. But over my years, I've met those people. They might even say, well, yes, Jesus is the best way. But obviously, all these other religions, well, they're ways to God as well. You hear it all the time. Now, that's a condescending remark about Jesus because a lot of them will say, well, he's simply one amongst equals. And whether it's uh, uh, Allah or the Hindu God or the Buddhist God or the Jewish God, um, as long as people are sincere, yes, this is one way. But is that what Jesus says? What does he say? I am the way, truth, and life. No man, and that means no body, no man, woman, no boy or girl is able to come to this heavenly place of which I am speaking except through me. Now, I think you're probably already recognizing this. We'll come back to this as the weekend unfolds. This today is highly unacceptable and only going to become more so. Any other religion, any other perverse philosophy, any other perversions of thought will be acceptable. There's only one thing on today's menu that's unacceptable, and that is this exclusive claim. Just as it was unacceptable in the days of Caesar. You know, if he simply said, I am a way, you know, Caesar could allow for that. I am the way. And that's what's happening now. And it's going to be increasingly um, hated. And you must understand what the Savior is saying here. He's not a cafeteria option. He's not one even great amongst others or one amongst equals. He is the only way. And if you do not come to God through the Lord Jesus Christ by repentance and faith, then you're lost. And if you're here tonight and you're playing these mind games that, well, yeah, I believe that Christianity is one way, but there are other ways, and you're not yet a Christian. If you don't understand that there's no other way, that there's no other Lord, there's no other Savior but Jesus Christ, then you can't be saved by Him. Because he says, I'm the way, the truth, the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. We rest in him. We cling to him alone. Then we have this comfort that he promises to his apostles. As he, um, on the basis of his perfect work, commands them to believe and, and not be afraid. And so he, he speaks to us tonight. They will grow in comfort in their grasp in the unfolding hours here of this teaching in the upper room. And I want you to grow in your grasp of the glory of the triune God who says to you tonight, you don't need to be afraid. Now, there are many things that make you afraid. 
darkness makes us children afraid sometimes. I can remember that uh, in, my, in my bedroom in Memphis, every night, the little toy chest would come up and a creature would come out. I was afraid, you know. Now, in the daytime, I checked it out and there was, there was no hole in the bottom of it and there was only toys in it. But I was afraid of that which was really stupid to be afraid of. Uh, sometimes our fears are not so stupid. But we're afraid of lots of things. Some of you are afraid of being adults. And others are afraid of getting old and dying. Or having some uh, painful disease. Or economic work problems. Or life difficulties with, with grief. A number of you have lost loved ones. Um, define it, okay? Fill in the blank. What's the thing that you're afraid of tonight? And then let the Holy Spirit tell you, don't let your heart be troubled. You believe in God. You rest in the Lord Jesus Christ. You grow then in your exercise of faith. You remember I said faith is not something that's static. Why do you think he sends you your problems? Simply because he enjoys watching you suffer? No, he sends you your problems to test your faith and to strengthen it and and to make it grow because if you don't exercise it, it's not going to grow, is it? So every problem, whether it's a chastening that is actually because of your sin or merely the trials that God brings in your life, these things that are frightening you tonight are all by God's providence to give you opportunity to grow in faith. And boys and girls, now is the time to exercise faith. Now is the time to build these habits of turning doubt and fear away by resting in Christ and in the promises of his word. And blessed be our holy God who says to us tonight, don't let your heart be troubled. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this uh, commandment and the means of the commandment that you've given to us that we are to believe in you, holy triune God, and not to be troubled and afraid because of the perfect work that Christ has done and is working out for us now in heaven and our lives. We thank you you've opened our eyes to him to know that he is the way, the truth, and the life. And grant that every person here tonight is in the way of Christ by faith, walking by him, in him, Resting in him alone. Amen.